Oh Lord Jesus, we pray today that in this very room today you would birth people into your kingdom. Lord, whether it's um, in this room, over the internet, or in worship too, that today you would open eyes and ears to hear in a new way, to see in a, with new eyesight, to be able to have some today who would say truly Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him they might have life in your name. Oh, Christ, please do that today. Thank you that we do nothing. The Word does it all. And that as close as we get to the text, the more power, the more light, the more heat there is, the more change is possible. And so I pray you'd help us to hear today with ears ready to listen, ready to receive your Word. Give strength and encouragement to those who need it today, who know you, who are clinging through hardships and difficulties, let your word be a great comfort to their hearts because truly you are the Son of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love it when I come across an old, familiar thing and I understand it in a new way. Find something that I've known for a long time, but suddenly it takes on new meaning. I've discovered that over the last couple of weeks in regards to church history. I just completed a book on uh, the history of the church during the season of Reformation, a book called The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. And in that book, I'm just learning some really wonderful things, things that I've known but really are taking on new light. Let me give you a couple examples. For instance, I learned that in the 1500s, There were a group of uh, secular humanist philosophers who began to question the teachings of the church, and they began to ridicule theologians of the past who asked what they considered to be rather silly questions. Questions like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Or questions like, could God have become a cucumber instead of a man? Keep in mind, this is pre-VeggieTale era, okay, so... And and the theologian who asked these questions that they ridiculed was a man man named John Duns Scotus. And he became a symbol of being an idiot, of asking idiotic questions, of asking stupid questions, if you would. And so philosophers during that time period called people who asked dumb questions a dunceman or a dunce. By the way, I think that's the early beginnings of the dunce cap there in the picture. (laughs) I found that to be fascinating. That's where the word dunce comes from. Here's another one. You ever heard the phrase hocus pocus? refers to something um, superstitious, something magical. You know where that came from? Well, the Catholic Church, in the presentation of the Mass to the people for centuries did it in Latin. The problem was is that most people in the pew didn't understand Latin, and even a few of the priests didn't understand Latin. And so people were coming to worship, and what they heard and what they saw didn't connect. They they didn't make any sense to them. And when they received the Lord's table, the phrase in Latin, this is my body, here's how it would sound in Latin, hoc est Corpus meum. Well, the problem is people in the pew didn't understand what that meant. And if you said it fast enough, here's what it sounds like. Hocus corpus meum. Hocus corpus meum. You hear 
hocus pocus. And so people over time began to equate what was going on in the church as something mystical, uh, mysterious or somehow mystical or somehow magical that didn't have any connection on their life. So therefore they thought what was going on in the mass was simply hocus pocus. See, I don't know about you, but I, I love little information bits like that. Things that connect both to the past and now shed new light on it in the future. My wife calls this my penchant for useless knowledge. She calls me often a wellspring of useless knowledge. But this stuff is interesting um, to me. And this morning what we're going to talk about is um, some Bible stories that I believe that probably many of you have heard in your lifetime. In fact, this is going to bring back some flannel graph memories for you, Okay. We're talking about two stories, the story of uh, Jesus and the uh, feeding of the 5,000, and also the story of when Peter walked on water. And these are both very familiar stories. And what I hope that we'll do today is we'll be able to shed some new light that these stories won't just be familiar flannel graph stories, that they'll actually be things that you understand in a fresh and a new way, that, that you come to see that, that truly Jesus is the Son of God as presented in these wonderful stories that are very familiar. What we're driving at this morning is continuing in this theme that we found in Matthew that there's this growing unbelief of these people who've encountered Jesus and he's experienced this unbelief in his family, uh, the city of Nazareth, Herod, and the people who are crowding around him. And then in Matthew 14, we begin to see a shift, particularly beginning in our text today, and he shifts the focus of the narrative lens, so to speak, from unbelief to what happens when you're near Jesus. In other words, there's something really beautiful, something amazingly attractive, and and something, frankly, really powerful when Jesus is near. We find in in this, this section of Scripture that when you get near Jesus, or when He gets near you, some pretty amazing and profound things happen. And you discover that, indeed, He really is the Son of God. This morning we're going to see three different little pictures of the life of Jesus and a couple miracles that he did. And also from them, I want to draw out three principles for us to think about, meditate on, and maybe have these things drive home some important truths in our minds and hearts. Here's the first one, and that is that there is always enough when the Son of God is near. There's always enough when the Son of God is near. We begin in verse 13, and we learn that Jesus, having heard the news about John the Baptist beheading, tries to retreat away from the crowds and to head to a deserted place. However, the crowds apparently heard where he was going, and so while Jesus is in a boat with his disciples, they land, and a large group of people have then followed him and were waiting for him. And in classic Jesus form, he wasn't angry that his getaway plan failed, but rather in verse 14 we see that he has compassion on them. It says, and he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Well, apparently Jesus is doing this healing their sick ministry for some time, and the disciples, as this ministry continues, begin to get concerned because the hour is growing late, and they suggest that the people should be dismissed so they can go into the surrounding towns and get some food and be dismissed back to their homes. We're not exactly sure why the disciples were concerned about this. Maybe they themselves were hungry. Uh, Maybe they were ready for the day to be done, or maybe they were just planning ahead, thinking that, look, we've got to figure out what to do with all of these people. But verse 16, Jesus says something that is shocking. 
Jesus said, verse 16, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Oh, to be able to insert yourself into this story and see what this was like. I, just, the disciples say to Jesus, hey, you got to send these people away. they got to get something to eat. And Jesus says, no, 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 you give them something to eat. And I can imagine they go, is he talking to us? Is he talking to us? How are we going to give these people something to eat? A parallel passage in John 6 tells us that Jesus said this in order to test his disciples. You see, he saw the needs of the people... And he commanded then his disciples to do something in order to meet their needs. Note that, that he gives them a command. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Well, the disciples feel like this is an impossible command on Jesus' part. He's asked them to do something that they simply cannot do. And they say to him in verse 17, we only have five loaves and two fish. So apparently they scrambled, they found a little boy, according to John's account, who had this lunch that his mom apparently had packed for him or someone. And and what he's got in this basket is a really meager provision. He's got two, uh, two smoked fish and five barley loaves, the kind of bread that uh, poor people would have eaten. And these loaves would have been about the size of a small dinner roll. So we're not talking about a lot amount, a lot of food at all. In fact, it was barely enough to provide for one person, a small person at that. And that's all that they had. So they bring it to Jesus and they say, this is all we've got. So get this. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they say, how about this? I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a failure situation right in front of us. And then verse 18 is the turning point of the story. I love this. When when you read the Bible, be sure you read it slow enough that you catch little phrases like this. Verse 18, Jesus said, bring them here to me. That's a loaded statement. Bring them here to me. What Jesus is saying here is that he's going to take their meager little provision and what to them seems impossible is now going to be possible. And it's only possible because Jesus said, bring them here to me. Verse 19 and 20 captures a beautiful moment. That he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. What a moment this must have been. All these people, 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people, all in this grassy knoll area, five little rolls of bread, two fish. Jesus looks up to heaven, says a blessing. And then the text says that he begins to break the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples. And he just keeps breaking them, and they keep coming, and he keeps giving them more and more and more. And they go and they distribute, they come back, and he keeps giving them more and more, and they keep coming back more and more and more. And the text says that the disciples gave it to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. So don't, don't miss anything in those little, that, those two verses. There's this basic meal. There's this look to heaven. There's a blessing that Jesus offers, a distribution of the food from Jesus through the disciples. And then notice that there is complete satisfaction. 
I mean, this picture that's here is just so amazing. And, and yet that, it's, there's even more here because there's not only satisfaction, there's an abundant provision for the people. Verse 20 says, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Some people think this is just the 12 disciples who are going. Others see it as a, as an indicator, a symbol, if you will, of God's unbelievable provision for the nation of Israel. 12 baskets, 12 tribes. In the same way that God provided manna in the wilderness, here is the Son of God asking the Father's blessing, like um, uh, uh, the the prophets of old providing um, oil to, to widows in their houses, like the future coming marriage supper of the Lamb. Here is this beautiful provision of Christ meeting the needs of people. And verse 21 says, And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So here's the story. I know it's familiar. But it's Jesus, on a taxing day, sees people through the eyes of compassion, commands his followers to meet their needs, and then meets the needs of the people by multiplying meager elements of a little boy's lunch into an overflowing and satisfying abundance. In other words, listen, there is always enough when the Son of God is near, even if you don't see how right away. Let me give you a couple things to think about. The first would be this. When thinking about this text, I was reminded that more than the bread, more than the fish, you know what really is beautiful about this? It is that those, that bread and that fish we're able to be the food of the people because Jesus, at the end of the day, is the real provision. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. The the, the Apostle Paul says that he himself is our peace. So more than the food, more than the fish, more than the bread, the beauty of this moment is that Jesus, the bread of life, is in their midst and he's providing for their needs. It's the same thing the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, thus securing redemption. So five loaves and two fish take on new power because Jesus, the ultimate provision, is in the midst. Here's the second thing. It is that the presence of Jesus not only is a personal provision, but it creates amazing satisfaction. From God's provision of manna to even think of the, the, the symbolism of the Lord's table that will be coming in the book of Matthew and, and, and Jesus' end of his life. Here he is taking the, the, the meal of Passover and saying, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And even then the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of those beautiful metaphors are powerful because Jesus creates satisfaction. Matthew wants us to see the beauty of what happens when Jesus serves as your host. The writer, David, in Psalm 23, says, The Lord is my shepherd, what? I shall not want. Third, and I think this is probably... Very significant for a number of you this morning. 
whatever Jesus commands, he also empowers. This is really important. Take your Bibles and go over to Philippians 2. I put this application point in here for those of you who honestly feel today as if Jesus has said to you, I want you to take care of this. And you have said to him, I can't do this. Or he's put you in a circumstance in your life where there are moments when you feel like, this is impossible. I can't do what you're asking me to do. I can't. I can't. You are asking me to do what I'm not able to do. And the beautiful reality is that Philippians 2, I think, gives great help for those moments, which honestly, they come for all of us. Everyone in this room has thought, I can't do this anymore. Philippians 2.12 and 13. Can't tell you how many times I have preached this verse to my own heart. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, be a godly person, figure out what it means to be a follower of Christ, and do it with a holy resolve and a godly conviction. Go be a godly man or woman. And yet sometimes we go, that's impossible. You don't know my boss. You don't know my wife. You don't know my kids. You don't understand my body. You don't understand my past. You don't understand. And all these things we can throw up. And that here is what God says, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the good news. It is God who not only gives you the ability, listen, he also gives you the desire. That's, that's what conversion is. He opens your eyes and he gives you new appetites so you long to come to Christ and that's the first of a million times in your lifetime that he will do that. So there are some times when all you can say to Christ is will you help me even want to do what you're asking me to do? It was Augustine who said it this way, command what you will, but give what you command. Command what you will, but give. I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. Just help me, help me, help me. Through the Brookside Initiative, one of the pastors that uh, Pastor Dale has introduced me to and our staff to is Pastor Mike Bowling of Englewood Christian Church. I've mentioned him here before. It's a great urban ministry in the Brookside neighborhood. They have a vision for preaching the gospel and then finding ways to redeem the neighborhood surrounding their church. And they are in the process of buying houses. People use their own resources to buy houses. Believers move into those homes. And, I mean, they're, they're literally transforming neighbors, uh, neighborhoods, rather, and, and for that matter, neighbors around them by the infusion of just this sort of kingdom mentality. They have a huge vision, and there's so many needs. And yet... There was an occasion when I heard Pastor Mike say something that just struck me. He said this, Englewood Christian Church has everything we need in the people of Englewood and in Jesus Christ. We lack nothing to do God's will. That is a beautiful perspective to have. Especially when Jesus asks you to do something that seems impossible and then he says, go ahead, bring it to me. There's always enough when Jesus is near. Here's the second one. 
There is protection when the Son of God is near. So Jesus completes his ministry to the crowds, and then he returns to his original plan, which was to get away and to go and pray. So he slips away, he's all alone, and his disciples go out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And the text tells us in verse 24 that a storm develops on the sea and the disciples were a long way from land, beaten by waves because the wind was against them. So wherever they're trying to go, the wind is working against them and they can't get from point A to point B. Now you've got to get this picture in your mind. The boat's probably about 25 feet long can hold between 12 and 15 people, pretty crowded. They're about three to four miles from shore, and they've been battling this storm, if we understand the time frame right, about nine hours. The situation is rather precarious. Additionally, in the time of Jesus, storms were associated with divine retribution, punishment, or the presence of evil. So the disciples, no doubt, have seen face-to-face evil encountered. And they're away from the master, they're in a boat, and a storm is crushing them, and they are afraid. Somewhere between the hours of 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning, Jesus begins walking on the water to his disciples. So, so get this image. They're on the boat, 12 to 15 of them. They've been rowing and fighting this, this storm for nine hours. And Jesus begins to walk towards them. The wind is howling, and these men are in a fight for their lives. And when Jesus is close enough for them to see him, the text tells us they mistake him for a ghost. In other words, they think he's the grim reaper. Okay, that's what they think. This is, here's someone coming. This is what all this is about. And they are, they are freaked out. Verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. The word means to shriek. Terrified means that they had, their minds were, were disturbed. They are sure that what they thought was evil was coming to get them. And then Jesus, in the midst of this storm, speaks and he says, Take heart, it is I. Meaning, be of good cheer, be happy, it's him, be relieved, it's him. He commands them, don't be afraid. And then Peter, as he often does, speaks for the group and says something that is just unbelievable. In order to prove that it's Jesus, he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now just think of this for a moment, okay? There's a lot of things I might say to Jesus if I'm a disciple in the boat and I'm freaked out. I think he's a ghost and I don't know it's him. He says, take heart and I want to know, is this really Jesus? I might say, flash us the disciple sign. You know, what's that sign? Show us the thing. Do something. Speak. Show. Give us the signal. Show us the light. Make the, here's an idea. Make the storm stop. I mean, try that. No, what does Peter say? Peter says, if it's you, let me come to you. So out of the boat, into the water. Can you imagine this? The boat's rocking everywhere. Peter's like, if it's you, bid me come. And then Jesus says a word pregnant with divine power. Come. Come. Oh, what a beautiful word come is. 
And when Jesus says, come, Peter is suddenly empowered. And imagine this. He leans out, steps over the boat, and walks on the water. And if I'm a disciple in the boat, I'm thinking, this is not going to go well. This is not a good idea. And yet, Peter, there he is. And he begins to walk on the water. So just so you know, when we go and we study the life of Peter, we see things that he says. I mean, he often puts his foot in his mouth, just like you and I do. But before you're ever really hard on Peter, just remember that you've never walked on water, and he has. And here, here's a man who has unbelievable faith, it would seem, and Jesus bids him come. We're not told how far away Jesus was, but it seems that Peter walked some distance, and he nearly made it to Jesus, when suddenly, just like that, his great faith, following Christ, focused on Jesus, his faith begins to wane, the focus shifts, and the text says in verse 30, when he saw the wind He was afraid. And what happened is that his attention moved from Jesus, who had just bid him come, to the circumstances that were around him, and he began to sink. And therefore, Peter cried out, Lord, save me! Well, apparently, he's close enough to Jesus that when he cries out, Lord, save me, and puts out his hand, Jesus then immediately reaches out and grabs him. Now, this is a a beautiful scene because Jesus could have saved him by any means. He could have said, float. Right? He could have said, swim. He could have said anything. He could have said, wind, cease. But what does he do? He reaches out and grabs him. And imagine this moment as Jesus pulls Peter out of the water. And there Peter is heart to heart with the Savior. In the middle, the storm is still raging. And Peter, in his faith, having just collapsed, is now right next to Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes him. And he says to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And here is Peter, walking with Jesus back to the boat. That is cool. Isn't it? Can you imagine? I mean, it's like, come on, let's go, let's go. I mean, I just, I mean, I just, he, there's no way he's going to sink. And the text tells us that when he stepped into the boat, when Jesus stepped into the boat, the, the sea, the waves, the storm ceased. And the result, verse 32, look at it. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, singing, Truly, you are the Son of God. What a moment. They couldn't help themselves. They're so in awe of His power that they suddenly break into worship. The presence of Jesus means the kind of protection. Listen to me. The presence of Jesus means the kind of protection that leads you to worship. It's the person who in the midst of a very, very dark trial says, Oh no, you never let go, Lord. You never let go of me. So what do we do with this? Just a couple more applications. First, notice this. Notice, friends, that storms are by divine design. Something you have to get in your head if if you're going to be able to make it as a follower of Jesus is nothing happens by accident. There there are confusing things that happen, things that you may not be able to make sense, but nothing ever catches God by surprise. He never says, what are we going to do about that thing in Mark's life? I don't know. What do you think? God never wonders. He never freaks out. doesn't have to consult. He certainly doesn't Google it. God doesn't have to wonder about any of that. 
He knows he is in absolute control. So here is Jesus who goes alone to pray by divine design. The disciples go out on the lake for a nine-hour tour. A nine-hour tour, right? And it's by divine design. This storm, God called for it, and it comes on the lake, and he doesn't just put them out there for one hour. Or two hours, or three hours, or four, or five, or six, or seven, or eight. He puts them out there for nine hours. Nothing is out of control. So here's just something to remember. That when God calls for a storm in your life, and you are like, how come we have to row for nine hours? Just realize, you may be only 30 minutes away from Jesus showing up in a powerful way. William Cooper, in his classic hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, says this, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Storms of our divine design. Next, Jesus creates safety in the midst of storms. So the beautiful thing is that in the midst of the storm, there can be safety. Can you imagine what it was like with Peter to walk back to that boat with Jesus? His faith had failed, but Jesus had rescued him. And here he is walking right next to the one who commands the wind and the waves. Peter's action of coming to Jesus was radical, but it was safe because Jesus had commanded him. Jesus said, come. And he was right there with him. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You ever tasted that? You know what that's like? In the midst of the darkest hour, the sense of the personal presence of Jesus, there is a sweetness to that presence of Christ like nothing you can possibly imagine. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? For some of you, your storms aren't physical or financial or circumstantial. They're people. They are people. And for you, the safety is knowing that Jesus says he is your helper. Therefore, you should not fear because what are they going to do to you? Finally, It is that believers are offered ultimate spiritual protection in Jesus. One of the greatest promises is almost modeled for us in this story that nothing can ever separate us from Christ. Listen to Romans 8. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, listen, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's nothing more dangerous than being a sinful creature in the presence of a holy God, and there's nothing safer than being kept in the righteousness of Christ, nothing safer than standing before a holy God and saying, I am in your Son. You see, a simple children's Sunday school story has beautiful, powerful implications that should help us be free. That when the storms come, when difficulties are there, that you can be free. 
John Bunyan put it this way. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Greater news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So fly. Fly with the beautiful reality of what it means to know the gospel in the person of Christ. Here's the final one. And that there is not just this idea of provision, also this idea of protection, but also here's this final power. Matthew 14 ends with this beautiful right response of the city of Gennesaret. Verse 34 tells us that Jesus and his disciples complete their nine-hour tour. They land at Gennesaret, a city on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and the city did three things. Notice, when they crossed over, Verse 35, when the men of that place recognized him, that was the first. Secondly, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might touch the fringe of his garment. They implored him. So here's what they did. They they recognized who he was. They believed that Jesus had the power to heal. And so they began to get people from all around their community and bring them to Jesus because they believe he's the son of God and if I can just get my aunt to be near Jesus then maybe as Jesus walks by I can call on him and he'll come close and she can just reach out her hand and touch the hem of his garment and and, and then she'll be healed and these people in their faith brought these people who were in need to encounter the living Christ and it says they implored him it means to call someone near it means to beg or to urge that's what they did to Jesus they were calling out to him Jesus come here Jesus come and it wasn't just a, a half-hearted sort of would you please come here man I got this was a a begging a loud calling when I was a kid, my dad took me to a Detroit Tigers baseball game, and we were seated off the left field line. And a person who played for the Tigers at the time was a guy named Champ Summers. Some of you remember that name. Apparently, I learned this between services. He has some sort of Indianapolis roots. And um, in one of the innings, Champ Summers hit a home run. It, it was a fly to the left field, and it hit the girder between the lower deck and the upper deck, and the ball fell down into the outfield. And the left fielder that day, playing for the Blue Jays, was a man named Leon Roberts. Leon happened to grow up in Kalamazoo, where we were from, and my dad recognized him and stood up. I was sitting there as a kid. He stood up, and Leon had picked up the ball, and my dad said, Hey, Leon, over here! And Leon went, whoop! And i never forget my dad grabbing that ball and going, Here you go. I was like, I mean, it was like MasterCard moment, you know, priceless. I mean, it was, oh. And it, it all happened because he didn't care what anybody else thought. All he knew was, that ball, my boy, let's make a connection. Leon, over here. And this is what these people do. Jesus, over here. Jesus, over here. Jesus, come here. If you could just get him here and connect these two, then something powerful can happen. Listen to me. To implore Jesus, it only happens because you know who he is. 
and you see him in his glory, that you that God by his spirit opens your eyes and you see him in this text and you see that he is the son of God, you see that he led a sinless life, that he was crucified on a cross and that 2,000 years ago what hung on this symbol, which was once a symbol of excruciating execution, now becomes the symbol of life because here hangs the son of God. And Jesus opens your eyes, the spirit of God opens your mind and you see it. You see him and you see your need. And you realize that without him, you're in big trouble because you know that at the end of the day, the Bible is right that the wages of your sin does produce death and that everyone is condemned. And the problem is not just what you do in your heart. You know the problem is you. It's who you are, not just what you do. And when you see that and understand it and God opens your mind, suddenly now things come out of your mouth because by the Spirit's work in you, you now see who you are and who He is and you say, Jesus, would you come and help me? Would you, would you come and forgive me? The imploring only happens because your orientation to who He is has been changed. You see Him. You know who He is. And the result is you plead, come, cleanse me, forgive me, take over, be my Lord, be my master. Because I believe that you truly are the Son of God. And there's some of you here today that I believe that this very moment, God by His Spirit has begun to open the window of your heart for you to see who he is and today could be the day when you move from darkness to light when you move from being an enemy of god to the friend of god when that happens it is where you say jesus would you please come near you've heard a testimony about that in our baptismal tank of a man who heard on the internet and god converted him it is that jesus being implored to come, comes. And what he does is he completely transforms a person's life. You see, this Savior is sufficient. He's eternally safe. He's able to save. So here it is. The one truth that can radically change your life and makes all the difference in your eternal destiny. Do you want Jesus to be near? Do you want him to change you? Do you want his death to count for yours? Do you want God to consider you righteous through the death and resurrection of Jesus? Do you want God to give you the alien righteousness of Christ where he says to you, You are my son because you have said he is your son. Jesus truly is the Son of God, a sufficient, safe Savior. Father in heaven, I pray that you would first, as I prayed at the very beginning, birth men and women into the kingdom of heaven today. Lord, you, by your Spirit, Move people's minds and hearts from a position of being resistant to an openness to see you for who you are. Lord, I don't know all the ways in which you do that, but I know that the Word of God and the Spirit of God combine. And I pray that even now, 
your word would fall upon someone's heart who would say, Lord Jesus, I believe you are truly the Son of God. And that by believing in him, that person might have life in his name. And Father, for those who know this truth, who cling to this truth, who love this truth, well, I pray that we, like Peter, would be able to say, Lord, save us when our faith grows weak. That, Lord, we would have faith to believe you when you ask us to do things that we think are so difficult and you say, bring it to me. So, Lord, help us to hear your invitation to come. To come walk on the water, to come bring our meager provision, or to come for the first time and acknowledge you as Savior and Lord. And listen, before we just dismiss, before we leave, could I just give you a moment to think to pray. What is it that God is saying this morning to you? What is it that He by His Spirit wants to communicate to your heart? Are you truly a child of God? Do you see Him in a new way today? It could be that God this very moment has opened your eyes that you might come. There's some need in your heart will have some our prayer team afterwards. We'd love to have them pray with you so you might know today what it is to really be a child of God. Or to pray with those of you who are clinging in the midst of what feels like a nine-hour tour. So God, give grace today through your word and by the Spirit of God. And we ask this in the name of the Son of God, in Jesus' name. Amen.